I was standing over there and I was, I was putting my hand up in praise and, and I, you have to know the other part of this story. Last night I was at a wedding and so we were dancing and so I had my hand up at one point doing this, you know, and then I was standing here and I was thinking, you know, my mind went back to the wedding. I think, no, this is not the place where you're going to be jumping up and down. But then I thought, I said, you know, David danced before the king. And so sometimes we, we, we let our stuff get in the way where we're not freed up, where we can just allow God to just, through his spirit, just move us to worship him, right? It's okay. And so I was standing there, and, you know, I could have just, from the mountain, and it would have been okay, right? But there's probably somebody here that would have said, uh, Pastor Hassan has lost it. <laughs> this morning, uh, we will be continuing. And for those that don't know, uh, <clears throat> Pastor Doug was uh, stricken with a little bit of a sickness while he was on his trip in Haiti. And uh, he's okay now. But uh, for a minute, we got a message where it was sounding pretty serious. Some sort of bug or virus. We don't know the exact details, but it was pretty bad, such that he actually canceled his trip to midwinter which he was really so looking forward to attending. And so uh, he's recuperating now. Uh, I believe he flies out today from Haiti, heading back to his home, and uh, he's doing much better now. So I can't wait to hear this story because he put a little caveat. He said, oh, it was bizarre. And, and it was kind of like he didn't go into details, but it was something weird that happened with this virus. And, and he said it was almost laughable. Or he, I, I don't know. So I'm, I'm waiting to see what is he going to do with that. He's going to tell us a story. I'm sure it's going to be really interesting. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. We've been in this series, Live a Life of Love, the Challenge of Ephesians. The title given in your program, I think, is Made Alive in Christ. Actually, I had a different title uh, that I'd like to use, and I just simply said, Reformation, or transformation, reformation, transformation. Uh, and I picked that up because I was trying to piggyback off of the, the other T-I-O-N messages that we've had. And so I said, this would be an opportunity to kind of piggyback off that and use transformation. Uh, if you've been here at least for the last couple weeks, you know that we've been doing this series. Uh, the previous series was called Elevation, and then uh, we were into this series, uh, uh, titled uh, Re uh, Revelation with a double L, uh, where we were kind of talking about uh, what's happening with the Christian, the Christian person in, in terms of their identity. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit because this morning I want you to understand something that's going to be very key. Now some of you sitting here today will probably be shocked at some things you're going to hear but I want you to be able to move past what you hear today so that you can get into understanding what is God saying to us, each of us. I'm going to share a little bit of my testimony at some point as the Spirit leads, something I have not done uh, here uh, since I've been here, and uh, some of you already know it because I've shared it with you, but uh, it, it will be to kind of illustrate where and how this text works in a very real way uh, in our lives, I'll be sharing my life, and you'll, you'll kind of see how it fits with your life. The last time we were here, Doug, Pastor Doug spoke from the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 15 to 23, and he said that there's a reason for reveling. He entitled that message, Revelation. 
And he said that ultimately we revel because God has already blessed us in Christ with these abundant blessings. And you get all of that from the first part of chapter or chapter one, that, that, that whole first section, Paul is basically saying, here's what you have in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have all this stuff. And he lists all this. You are in Christ, with Christ, all of this. And, and, and there's something about uh, understanding that what God wants to do is he, what he has done for us is he's blessed us in such a way that now this blessing can be revealed. This wasn't known before, and now this can be revealed to everyone. Then the third thing, he says, this greater experience of God available to all of us kind of manifests itself in a way of power, that God has empowered us now to be able to live the Christian life through the Holy Spirit, of which, by the way, we have been promised and sealed. If you go back and you look in that first section, it talks about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we have this inheritance from God. God has already blessed us and said, if you are in Christ, and you will hear that phrase over and over again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you have this. And so what I want to do today in this message is I want to basically exhort you towards some sort of deeper appreciation, as it were, for your salvation. One of the interesting things I think that's happened, and it happens to all of us, is that sometimes we go along, and if you're not a saved person, if you're not a Christian and you're sitting here this morning, I've got something for you as well, so don't tune me out. But for the most part, Paul in his message to Ephesians is really talking to saints, Christians, not saints, people that walk on water, but people that have been set apart for God's purposes. So one of the things that happens with us as Christians is we, we kind of we get excited in the very beginning. It's kind of like marriage. You're all excited at first. And the it just builds and builds and you know there's that dating part and then that morphs into something else and and next thing you know you're kind of in the engagement thing you're doing your premarital stuff and you're making plans for the wedding and then the wedding day happens and you do all that stuff you say your vows and then time passes by the crowds are gone now you're no longer doing this dating thing and guess what you kind of start to wane a little bit and it's not that you intentionally want to dish your spouse it's just that it's kind of, okay, let's get back to business as usual. And life starts happening. Maybe kids come along in three years or so, and things are kind of like, okay, hold on, here we go. And the reality, I share this with a lot of couples, the reality is that early on, it's when that you feel that waning occurring that you begin to say, let's think of some really creative ways to keep things going, to make sure that we don't lose our energy. I'm having to do it now at 31 years in, and there are times when it's waning big time, Karen would tell you. But we have to keep doing stuff to try to make sure that things, that we keep something going. The dating thing, something, however creative you can do it. Because you don't want it to get cold on you. You don't want it to get kind of humdrum. And that's precisely what happens sometimes with our Christianity. It gets kind of humdrum because it's kind of like, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, okay, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, how about those 49ers? I mean, we, we, we kind of get this kind of humdrum kind of attitude about it. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is that God, God, God wants us to be kind of do a, a control-alt-delete. Let's do a reset and look at what he has done for us. 
and how he has blessed us with spiritual blessings in high places. And that has placed us in this incredible position of power through the Holy Spirit, such that we can do things that we never imagined in terms of our marriages, our relationships, our dealing with our kids, dealing with the job, school, work, business, whatever. God has empowered us with some incredible blessings. And so Paul is making a very cogent argument and saying, here's what you have here. Do you really realize what you have? Do you understand the, 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 the gravity of what has happened, what God has done on your behalf? And so I want to encourage you to move beyond the lackluster level of your faith that kind of interferes with your spiritual growth. Move beyond that kind of just humdrumness and mature and grow and move to a place where God has you in terms of where and how he wants to use you. And that's a tremendous place to be for those that know Christ. So Paul is doing exactly what the Ephesian saints, uh, you know, he had told them he was going to do. He said, basically, we're going to, uh, I'm going to be praying that you are enlightened. Uh, and you are going to be enlightened with this, this kind of understanding about the riches of God's inheritance. Uh, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The first part, I think, 113. You've been sealed. You've been blessed. You have this special seal of the Holy Spirit's promise on you. And I want you to take that now and let the eyes, your heart be opened and, 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 and enlightened. Understand what you have. Paul begins, first of all, in chapter 2. And I want to read that because it reads very, very... I, I like the reading of uh, uh, Ephesians. It's, it's, it's an incredible letter. It's one of my favorite books. Like the earlier passage, this is one of the interesting parts about the New Testament. Uh, I'm not a New Testament scholar, but when you go through this, you know that this first chapter, like the second chapter, actually in uh, uh, Ephesians, is actually one sentence in the original Koine Greek. So all of chapter 2 is actually one sentence. So it's one of those things like Pastor Doug says, you start reading it in the Koine Greek, and you kind of like, and you keep reading, and you have these kind of like, but it's one sentence. So all that Paul is going to say here is actually one sentence. Reading from the NIV. And, and, and he, he's continuing this conversation, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, in the parentheses, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him 
in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come and we thank you for the privilege again of being able to take a stroll through your word with the Apostle Paul. We pray, God, that our eyes would be open, our hearts would be open and receptive, and God, most of all, that you're a spokesperson this morning, the mouthpiece this morning, that I would get it right. That God, some kind of way, God, that you would superintend my own heart, my own words and thoughts. That only Jesus Christ will be glorified. And we're so careful to give you all praise and glory and honor. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Everyone said amen. So Paul begins his letter, this part of the letter, by declaring the status of the, of the believers at Ephesus. He starts off kind of in a negative because he says, this is what you used to be like. And so he dredges up all this dirt and all the stuff that they used to be, where they were at before Christ. It's a very, very powerful picture because it's going to help us understand something about God's grace. And so he says, here's, here's where you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lawbreakers. We all were lawbreakers. Paul said. You missed the mark in terms of uh, Harmashia, in, in terms of this whole missing the mark sin thing. You missed it with God. That's where you were at. All of us, we missed it with God. In which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, there's this sense that what Paul is saying here is this is the way you used to walk and you were walking not as though you had a heavenly father that cared for and loved you, but you walked according to that one who is running the stuff here in this world and that is the prince of power of the air, Satan. And so you were characterized by disobedience because that was your nature. And because you were characterized by disobedience, you were formerly in this place where you're a child of wrath. You were an enemy of the cross. Why does Paul go into all of this stuff and dredge up all this dirt about the Ephesians? Why does he dig all this stuff up? I believe it's because... In order to really appreciate, please hear this, in order to really appreciate God's grace, it begins with an understanding of our own sin, particularly our past sin. Not to dwell on the stuff that we've done wrong, not to glory in the stuff that we've done wrong, but there's something very powerful about being able to look at where you used to be and bring yourself to a point of saying, oh, except for the grace of God, there I would be. 
And understanding that what God has done is he's kind of brought you into a place now where you can hold your head up without shame. People most aware of their sin appreciate most their need for grace, according to Hughes and Laney in their wonderful Tyndale commentary. So what was our prior status? That's what he's going to talk about in verses one through three. Dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, you had this pattern of behavior that was anti-God. You may not have acknowledged it, but you were operating outside of where God would have you to operate. Worldly in your thinking, directed by the prince of power of the air. So you were without hope, without freedom, without life. We were dead. All of us who now sit here and enjoy the privilege of being able to say, I am a child of God. I don't care what background you've come out of. The reality is that you may have never smoked marijuana. You may have never gotten drunk a day in your life. You may have never said a bad word or crossword to anyone. You may have never stolen anything. You may be Miss Goody Two-Shoes or Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. But in the reality of the scripture, the word of God says your righteousness is as filthy rags. There is not one person sitting here, myself included, that can claim anything such as I'm right before God. The only way that we would dare be able to utter any kind of any semblance of rightness before God is simply because God has clothed us in his son, Jesus Christ, his righteousness and his righteousness alone. So formally. Apostle said that you were dead. You were dead. We all were dead. We were dead. People that are spiritually dead are people that are operating outside of God's grace. They're people that are just going through life. You run into them every day. They're people on our jobs, people in school, people. they're, They're people that are just, they're just, they're doing what the world does. It is the most, somebody said this is the most narcissistic culture ever in our society, that that we are so self-centered. One of the key components of being dead, you tend to be self-centered because you believe it's all about you. You don't realize that it's not about you. It's about God. And for the Christian man or woman, it's about Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ working in you and through you. That's the difference. Formally, here's the problem. We lived, we lived in our own flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and mind by nature. That is our DNA. Was to do what we wanted to do. Whatever our hearts, whatever our passions said, that's what we did. We drank too much. We ate too much. We lied too much. We, we did whatever we were not supposed to do. We did those things. We cheated. We stole. We whatever. Someone might not have even ever seen you do anything. But because you were operating outside, we were operating outside of God's grace. We were dead people. My uh, 
when I think about this, uh, I think about where I used to be as a Christian, as a non-Christian, and uh, coming to a place of trying to figure out what does it mean to live life. And I started out, like any young person, living my life the way I wanted to live it. I was a young man, brand new in the military, and just single, free, doing, doing whatever, whomever, anytime I wanted to. And I remember my pattern of behavior was, was to basically spend my time as I was getting out of the military. I had about a couple years to go, and I was at one base here on the West Coast, and I was, I was getting close to discharging, and, and I just I, I felt that, hey, might as well go for the gusto. And I continued to live and live and live doing my own thing. And even to the extent where I would, Friday night, I'd go out and stay out Friday, come back in anytime. Then Saturday night, go out, stay out, come back in. And then Sunday, I'd get up and I'd be hung over and have too much. I didn't want to get up and I had to get up and eat and get ready for Monday. Start all over again, do it all over again. And that was a pattern all, all the time. Party, 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 party. Where's the party? Where's the party? Where's the party? Where's, where's the party? My life was party. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to a party, but when it becomes obsessive and you become consumed by it and the things that you're doing at such parties are degrading others and degrading yourself, then we've got a problem, Houston. It's bad. I purported to be a Muslim at one point, and I was going through telling folks that I'm, I'm into Islam, and this is my faith, and it is the black man's faith. And if you belong to any of that Christian stuff, you're an idiot because everybody knows that that stuff is a bunch of baloney. And I'd have Christian folks come to me and try to tell me stuff about the Bible, and I'd look at it and I'd say, are you kidding me? And if the person was black, I'd say, they've brainwashed you. Certainly you can't believe that stuff. And at one point I can remember being so, so crass in my behavior that I dare walk around and then just kind of just, just, just very stuck and up on myself, nose up in the air thinking that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need anybody. It's all about what Ali wants. And I remember this one guy that came into our group. I don't know where he came from, some other base. And his name was, I'll call him DZ. He's an Italian brother. And he walked around with a big, huge Bible, one of those family Bibles that you're supposed to put on the shelf and just leave there and just gather dust. He actually walked around with one of those in the section. Everybody thought he was crazy, including me. And he talked to people in real nice, soft, Christian-like voice, huh? How are you doing today? And, and I'd be waiting for him to come my way. I said, I can't wait for him to come my way. And one day he came over to me. I was on lunch and he said, mind if I join you? I said, don't even try it. I said, I'm a Muslim. I said, I don't want to hear that crap. I wasn't going to. I said, don't waste your time. Make a long story short, DZ eventually kind of backed off, and then another time he came to me, and he said, I just want to be a friend to you, Ali. I said, I don't need a friend like you. You're one of those Christian folks. No, no, I'm not going to. I said, I don't, I don't need that stuff. 
Then he wanted to come by my apartment one time, and I thought it was ludicrous. I said, are you kidding me? You really want to come by my apartment so you can tell me about this Jesus person? I said, tell you what, you can come by, we can hang out, but if you say anything about Jesus, I'm going to kick you out. I don't want to hear that crap. And he would, in a very humble way, just kind of tuck his tail and go on. Eventually, time went on by, and, 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 and he just kind of, I watched him. I watched how he operated. He was always on time at work. When everybody else would leave, when, you know, GIs, they would head out the door a little early, he would stay right there. He was always doing the stuff that nobody else wanted to do. He'd get, they'd dump the stuff that was the nasty jobs, they'd dump it on him, and he'd just kind of just go with it. He seemed to be always in, in a balanced place. Everybody else seemed to be in this frenzy, kind of crazy, hungover kind of thing. Yes, but DZ always was in this balanced place. One day, I, he, he said to me, I'm going to be in your area. I want to stop by. And so I said, sure, just don't bring that Bible with you. He says, okay. I said, don't say anything about Jesus. So he stopped by in my little apartment down there in Lompoc, California, and we sat there and we talked about all kinds of other stuff, and, and he never mentioned anything about Jesus. But I felt very, very uncomfortable the whole time because I knew that there was something that he was, he had an agenda somewhere, and it was just a matter of time. And he was time, it was time for him to leave. He looked at me, he says, let's do this again. I really like you. He said, I really think you're a nice guy. He says, you got everybody else believing you're this terrible person, but you're all right. And so we got together some other times and we talked and he never said anything about Jesus. But I remember one time I was going through a crisis. I had some stuff going on on the job and all kinds of stuff. And he said, I just want to pray for you, Ali. I know what's happening. Can I pray for you? I said, all right, yeah. So he prayed. Didn't ever say anything about Jesus to me after that, but he just prayed. My crises went on past and everything, and, and there he was, always there. At, how, how are you doing today? How's it going? I said, it's going fine. Make a long story short, DZ went on and transferred to another base. But because he planted the seed in my life, two years, almost two years later, I found myself standing up in a church saying, I want to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to say yes to Christ. I was standing in a church, a little small Baptist church, tears rolling down my face, and just, I just want, I want peace. I want this peace of Christ. The peace that you're speaking about. The pastor was preaching about peace or something. And I didn't have any. I wanted peace. And I credit DZ for being the person that was able to look beyond all my stuff and, and, and just simply live the life of Christ in my presence. My dog tags that every GI has to wear had no religious preference. I was going to bring them. I forgot to bring them. But I actually, and you're supposed to give your, your, your religious preference just in case you're killed they know what to do with your, you know, as far as whether you're Christian or Muslim or whatever. And I had on mine stamped in metal, no religious preference. And I realized now, years later, I say, wow, what an idiot. What an idiot I was. So 
what I realize is that God, God moved. And that's what Paul is going to say here when he says, but God. But God, in spite of all your stuff, in spite of all that you did, all the cursing against me, all the acting against me, but God. If you're sitting next to someone that looks like they're pretty friendly, turn to them and say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, rich in mercy because of his great love and his with which he loved us while we were yet sinners. Here's the solution. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we've been saved. So God, who is rich in mercy. That's a key piece there that I want you to think about, because when it says God is rich in mercy, we look at the word mercy and we don't get the full impact of, of what, it, what, the, what the author was really saying there. And that is in the Hebrew, there's this sense that, that, that God, what they say is hesed. That's his, his hes, God has this hesed compassion. That is God has this loving kindness, this covenant kind of thing going because that's his relationship with his people, a loving kindness. So God, who is rich in loving kindness. And there's even another word that leaves me right now, but there's another word that's used in talking about this hesed. It's always used in combination where God talk, talks about his loving kindness to people, but it has this peace that means the womb. And the idea is that the word that means the womb is that it's this idea of nurture, that God cares about us and he nurtures us and he wants the best for us. And he doesn't, in spite of all that we've done against him, he still cares for us. His hesed mercy. That's the way God wants to respond to us. It says we have been, verses 4 to 6, says we've been made alive, made alive together with Christ. This piece right here is probably one of the most important pieces because what it says to us is that we were dead, our former state, our present state now is that we've been made alive. How were we made alive? We've been made alive because we died with Christ. When Christ died, we died with him. When he was resurrected, we were resurrected to new life in Christ. You, you don't get the point of that. To be resurrected into new life is to be unencumbered with all the stuff of our past to be able to walk in newness of life in the power of the Holy Spirit in a very healthy way without all the stuff, all the baggage. We have been made alive in Christ. We have now spiritual life. Before we were spiritually dead, now we have spiritual life. Ellie Maxwell, a preacher from the 20th century, he's, uh, I think it's uh, Prairie Bible Institute, Ellie Maxwell, wrote a book years ago called Born Crucified. If you ever get an opportunity to read the book, read it. It was so powerful for me. And this was after I had become a Christian. I remember one day, years later, I'm over at Lockheed, just started at Lockheed, and I was going through some major life stuff, new babies and all kinds of stuff, you know, just, just stuff in life, crisis. 
And someone had recommended the book to me and said, yeah, read this, uh, L.E. Maxwell's uh, Born Crucified. And I read that. And it was such a tremendous boost to me. I found myself, at that time, I was taking the bus to Lockheed. As a, they had this thing where you get this discount if you take the bus. And I was taking the bus. When I arrived at Lockheed, my eyes were so red from crying. I was so embarrassed. I was sitting in the back of the bus. I didn't want anybody to see. And essentially what the writer was saying and born crucified is that when Christ died, we died with him. And with him, all of our garbage, all of our stuff, all that would be a baggage that would be shameful, that would have us guilty, went away. And for the first time in my life, this was after becoming a Christian now, I really understood what it meant to be made alive in Christ, to die to self. And to have all your stuff wiped away. And let me tell you, I had a lot of stuff. Some of you sitting here right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You got a lot of stuff, a lot of baggage, stuff that you've been carrying and carrying and carrying and carrying. And it's time to let it go because you've been made alive in Christ. Paul would say it another way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He would say that... The old man has been what? Buried. The new man has been resurrected to new life. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. How could he say that? Because he had exactly this image in mind that, that Christ's resurrection from death was our resurrection to life as well. That's, I don't know about you, but it's very liberating for me. Very liberating. I don't have any hang-ups whatsoever to say exactly where I've come from. Sometimes people are shocked when I tell them some of the stuff that I've dealt with in my own walk. As a Christian, and the guilt and the shame associated with those kinds of things, and yet to be able to stand and be able to stand and know that when Christ looks at me, he doesn't see all of the stuff, all of the baggage that I carry he, he sees me because when God looks at me now, he sees me covered in his son's righteousness. Doesn't mean that I'm perfect. No, we're not perfect. But what it does mean is that we don't have to walk around with shame. We have it together now because he is in the center of our lives. The cross, as he would say, is the key to all situations as well as to all scripture. It's all centered in the cross. So God's special favor, God's special favor is called grace. We've been saved by grace. Uh, then he expands on it again in verse 8, uh, where he talks about it's not by works, it's grace. What is God's grace? It's God's special favor on us. God's special favor that even when I was cursing him, when I was just kicking him, his, his servant to the side and and blaspheming his name and all that kind of stuff. God's grace looked beyond my stuff and allowed DZ to minister to me and allowed me to be able to say, okay, okay, God, I got it. Not our works. You cannot, I cannot work. You can't work yourself into this thing. It just, just won't, there's not enough you could do. There's some folk that would try to figure out, well, if it's God's free gift, there's got to be some part that I need to do. 
God is not looking for you to do. He's looking for you to be. Because when you have the character of Christ-likeness, when you put on Christ, when Christ is in you, then you will be what you need to be. And out of that being what you need to be, you will do those things that need to be done as far as a Christ-likeness. We get it backwards. We think that we have to work our way into it first, and then some kind of way working our way into it will allow us to be and say, we checked the box off now, that makes me righteous. No, God doesn't operate that way. He says, come as a child with humility and humbleness and contrition of heart and say, here I am, God, just, just, just however you want to deal with me. I'm a sinner, and I need your grace. And that's where I was at one day. I had to do that because I realized I could not help myself. I'm going to close this message. I'm going to look at verse 7 here before I close and ask the question. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's a very powerful image that when Christ, when we're raised up and we're seated up with Christ, what does that mean? But Christ seated by God's right hand is a place of authority, equal authority with God. And so the fact that God would now raise us up spiritually and place us there with his son, that's not a small place to be. That's a pretty serious place. So we are the people of God with Christ raised up with him. We are transformed. And you could say we are trophies of his grace. And that's what that verse 7 is about. It says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not even the faith belongs to us. We can't claim that. It was because of God. Not of works. It is the gift of God. Not of works, the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does it mean to be his workmanship? I want to just bring it down now a little bit. You go back, look at uh, Jeremiah, I believe it's Jeremiah 3.18 or 6.18. Jeremiah 18, chapter 18, the first six verses. I don't want to get into it now, but if you get a chance, look at Jeremiah 18, those first six verses. It talks about this image where Jeremiah is told by God to go down to the town and look at this potter that's working at, on the potter's wheel. He's forming clay and, and making things. And he said to, to Jeremiah the prophet, he said, just like the potter is working and shaping and molding things, so I can do that in the context with my people Israel. In our context in modern times, God is, we are God's workmanship. God is shaping and molding us. He is not finished with any of us yet. But it presumes that we assumes that we're going to be obedient and allow God to do his work in us. And that's what it means to be transformed through the message, through the gospel. How do you do that, Pastor Ali? Well, it starts by first acknowledging that you want to do it. God, I want you to transform me. I want to be what I should be. I want to be in that place seated with Christ because that's the place I'm at already. I want to appropriate that. I want to live that in my daily life. Start with a prayer. God, that's where I want to be. And then challenge God. God, I want to just do whatever it takes to get me there. Be careful when you pray that, though. 
Whatever it takes, whatever you have to do to me to get me there, it's okay. I want to be all that I need to be so that I reflect the Christ-likeness that you have designed me to have. I guarantee you, God will do it. He will change you. And I guarantee you, if you start to look at where you used to be and you look at what God has done now, I guarantee, sounds like I'm going to sell you a car, I guarantee (laughs) that you will begin to praise God. And that's what God is looking for, that you will begin to praise him and recognize that, oh, God, I'm not where I used to be. I'm not in that place where I used to just be really nasty. I'm not at that place where I used to be just cutthroat in my business dealings. I'm not at that place where I cheat. I'm not at that place where I was gossiping, where I was always degrading, putting people down. I'm not at that place where I was a respecter of persons like I used to. I'm not at the place where I was a racist, prejudiced. I'm not at that place where I used to live any kind of life, fornicating with anybody that would give it to me. I'm not at that, that place anymore. Because you place me in this high place in Christ. Let's close. Father, thank you so much for uh, your time, your word, your people. God, I pray that you would simply have your way. And we ask that you would bless and keep us and watch over us. God, this is a more difficult place for a lot of us. Because some of us do not want to acknowledge that we have sinned. And yet, God, we know that we have sin because your word tells us that if we say we don't have sin, we're a liar. That's what your word tells us. And so, God, the good news is that you have already paid for our sin. And so we don't have to dwell there. We don't have to just resonate there, marinate in our sin. We can go to the one who has liberated us, who has freed us up because the word says that whom the son loves, he loves and God, whom the son has set free is free indeed. You indeed have set us free from the bondage of our past. And so now we can stand with a clear conscience in Christ, in our high place, seated at his right hand with you. In Jesus' name.